and welcome to another edition of the Scholar on the Belt and Road podcast. I am Mali Malimov. In today's episode, our guest is Liu Zhaoning, also known as Johnson Liu, an inspiring young student from Tsinghua University. Currently, Johnson serves as an executive president of the Tsinghua Students Association of Belt and Road Initiative and a global intern at Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. He has a very rich portfolio for his age, having previously worked for CCTV America, Russia International Affairs Council. Johnson also interned with Arab American Language League and the largest social media platform for Chinese students in the U.S., College Daily. From our very first exchange, we were immediately impressed by Johnson's curiosity and drive to explore, from his knowledge of Islam and Tibetan Buddhism to conflict resolution and intercultural communication. We spent the first half of our meeting discussing historical origins behind linguistically different references to China in Russian and English. We discussed where the term Cathay comes from and why it was important then and how it continues to influence our knowledge of China now. We went back in time to 17th, 18th century China-Russia Tea Road, Marco Polo's travel to China, and the ambassadorial role of the people from Central Asia in transmitting cultural knowledge across big empires in the ancient Eurasian space. That off-the-record conversation itself would make a great podcast episode. But the discussion you're about to hear is no less fascinating in the broad yet interlinked insights Johnson gives us about the Eurasian region as he sees it today and as he experienced throughout his travels. Our producer Alicia Dovgaluk joined me as a co-host to interview Johnson and it became a memorable one. Enjoy. Johnson, we are so happy to have you here on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, if we can jump straight to the first question. In September of 2018, a student association of Belt and Road Initiative was established at Tsinghua University. Mm -hmm. You serve as its executive director. What is the association doing? Whom does it target? Right. Well, first of all, thank you uh, for having me today. And I'm very glad to be here and introducing you, uh, my organization. So SABRI, Student Association of Belt and Road Initiative, as you said, was born on Tsinghua campus in late September. Its main target, uh, target audiences so far are uh, young students and professionals that are interested in this topic called Belt and Road Initiative. And that basically includes uh, everybody. And uh, we are founded um, on Tsinghua campus and we are affiliated to the Belt and Road in, uh, Institute of the School of Social Science on Tsinghua University. And we do everything academics, uh, business, uh, uh, also cultural uh, things that are related to Belt and Road. So, so far every month we have an Inside BRI talk that targeted a specific region of Belt and Road regions and introduced people of this region's respective countries. We also hold talks about intrapreneurs or females or travelers that are doing something with Belt and Road. So far I've done uh, eight series of this. Also, we uh, take people to embassies and visit uh, interesting companies that, that are doing things related to Belt and Road as well. So basically, we consider us to be an embodiment of the encyclopedia of, of Belt and Road. 
and anything related to that, we do that. So when it comes to the encyclopedia, can you tell me your interpretation of the Belt and Road? What does Belt and Road mean for you? Right. So uh, I understand it from many dimensions and perspectives. Uh, but one thing is uh, intercultural communication integration. That's what's mm -hmm. the most important goal of Belt and Road. Belt and Road started from this idea, started from this concept uh, that we think we should uh, revive the ancient Silk Road for the uh, benefit of all countries along this uh, road. But there's one specific theory that I would like to introduce to everyone. Uh, this is actually an idea introduced by Professor He Maochun, a very renowned scholar based in Tsinghua University as well. So he introduced me this idea that uh, part of the reason why World War I and World War II broke out is because uh, countries lost confidence into interstate uh, trade and there were higher tariffs and uh, people come back to, uh, countries go back to isolation. And from there you have diplomatic crisis and then, from, and then you have war. And we almost see the signs of similar things happening in recent years. That uh, country no longer believe in interstate uh, trade, people no longer uh, believing in globalization. And then you have populism, you have tariffs being put into, uh, you know, trade. And then we might, uh, you know, come back to that same situation as we made the same mistake in 1920s and 30s. But at this very moment, China bring up this initiative called Belt and Road simply for the sake of promoting trade. So mm. we can avoid making the same mistakes as the Westerners have made before in the 20s and, uh, you know, back in the early uh, 20th century. So I think mm -hmm. China is a good student of the West, is learning from the experiences and very bravely doing something that is very beneficial for the rest of the world. Is a good is a good student of history. Is a good student of history, and we are very steadily learning about it, and we want to make it happen. So the initiative is very forward looking. I believe one so. One might say. I believe so. And on a personal level, um, I mean, we are living in the age of globalization. I personally believe in that, and I think people from different cultural background uh, should break that cultural barriers and come to talk to each other. And the BRI mm -hmm. is a great platform for that. Now, well, you say that we live in a world where everything is globalized, right. everything is interconnected. Right. But uh, the Belt and Road is has a regional aspect to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, Belt and Road is building out the Eurasian re region. Is that fair to say? I mean, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that so far, the uh, embodiment of Belt and Road, the six economic corridors, uh, basically go through the Eurasian spaces. So if you think from that perspective, yes, uh, China, from a Chinese perspective, we're trying to connect it with Eurasian space. But at the same time, under this big goal of intercultural communication, integration, I think every country can be included. So, you know, Latin America, Africa, Europe, uh, North America, uh, you know, uh, Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand, all these countries can be included into Belt and Road. If you simply think, think of the entire humanity as uh, we, we share the same uh, common destiny as uh, the, uh, the national policy of, of China. But I think practically so far, um, uh, we are doing more uh, things on the Eurasian space simply because the ancient Silk Road is there and it's very easy to pick it up. So why don't we just start from this as a great experiment and see if the old folks with old uh, friendship in the past can come back together yet again, then we think we can promote this idea to the rest of the world as well. Just tap and maybe a bit more on the uh, cultural exchange, intercultural communication that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it was quite interesting to me because you've been involved in quite a few of the student associations, yes. uh, Sabri as well, but also you've traveled, if I'm not mistaken, to the Middle Eastern countries yourself. Mm -hmm. um, among them were Egypt, uh, was it Lebanon, mm -hmm. uh, Iran, you mentioned? Yeah, so I have a personal project, which is uh, Belt and Road Youth or Belt and Road University Students on China. Mm. So what I did is I, I divided my big project into four regions, Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Central Asia. Um, and I traveled to these regions, uh, respective countries, and I interviewed their best university students' opinion on China. 
So I started this project from three years ago in 2015, uh, right after the Belt and Road Initiative was uh, initiated. And uh, my interest was that uh, everybody know about uh, you know uh, Western country or developed countries' opinions on China, but what about these regions? And I only focus on youth, uh, young people, university students. So among these uh, interviews, there's something very interesting come out because I, I never expect uh, mis misperceptions and misunderstanding can also be uh, a different, right? So Western people have their own misperceptions about China. But also university students from these regions have misperceptions. So the two things that uh, people usually bring up are, one, uh, Chinese Kung Fu. That's almost like a business card of, any, uh, of, of Chinese culture in any of those regions. And the second thing is Chinese people are really good at math. So that's in that's in the Middle East. That's in the Middle East. Yes, oh. I'm sorry. So specifically in the Middle East, I've been to uh, both are good. Both. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, for the Middle Eastern episode, I've been to uh, Lebanon, UAE, Turkey, Iran, uh, Jordan, Egypt, and Morocco. Um, so for example, in Iran, uh, everybody was asking me about you know uh, Hong Kong movies, Chinese kung fu, Buddhism. Uh, how, why Chinese people are so good at math. Um, so yeah, people, uh, misperceptions like this. And also people throw me a lot of questions like, uh, why isn't Islam the main faith of China? And uh, I never think from that perspective before. Um, so yeah, a lot of interesting output from these travels. And uh, there, there are many other things that I never expect from a Chinese perspective. Because from China, we mainly look at the US, the Europe, or Japan. We never think of you know our fellow uh, friends from, let's say, Arab countries, uh, Persians, or Southeast Asia, how do they think? Um, that's my project, and I have three episodes right now. I'm trying to finish the fourth one, the one in Central Asia. And I'd like to bring that to the public after I finish all of them. Very interesting. Now, when you were traveling throughout these countries, what mm -hmm. similarities did you see between China and the countries that you've traveled in? Yeah, so uh, besides differences, as I mentioned, there are also similarities. And, um, um, and it's actually those similarities that strike me. Um, so I, I wanted to mention a thing, uh, a, pre a previous question that I just forgot. So I read this book called um, Orientalism. Uh, I don't know if you heard about it. Yeah. So the very concept is that um, the Easterners or the people from the Orient uh, don't know how to describe themselves. Um, the way they describe themselves come from Western interpretation of the Eastern cultures. And the Western inter uh, people put their interpretation on the Eastern people, educate them in a way that they believe that's the correct uh, description of themselves. And they, they forgot uh, who they really were beforehand. Uh, so that's the very idea of uh, Orientalism. And I do see that uh, existing in many, many uh, you know, uh, Eastern cultures like China, India, or the Middle East. So I would like to break this. And I, I, I like to see how people really are. Instead of being uh, stable with many, many different labels, and say, this is the Indian, this is a typical Chinese, this is a typical Arab, this is a typical Iranian. Mm -hmm. So when you mention their similarity, that actually strike me, because then from there you can derive this con uh, conclusion that everyone just normal people. Right. There's no labels, there's no uh, specific checkpoints. Uh, you have to check all these points in order to be a Chinese, in order to be an Indian, right? So let's right. say, what's the similarity between uh, China and Arab country? We all cherish family values. Uh, we think education is so important. So, oh, actually, in, in, uh, so I would like to talk something about India. Um, you, uh, the movie of Mr. Amir Khan is very famous in, in China. And uh, part of the reason is because we realize the Indians are worried about the same problem the Chinese are worried about, right? For example, education. Our parents are so uh, worried their kids cannot go to a good universities. And in India, what they show in the movie is also like their parents also worried about uh, whether their students, their kids can go to a, a good universities. So when we realize we're sharing the same concerns, sharing, share, share the same complaints, com complaints, we share the same culture, then we're all normal people. We can talk to each other. 
there's no labels or misperceptions that exactly. we have to understand this misperception first in order to talk to each other. That's the best conclusion I got from my trips. Very interesting. You just mentioned the book Orientalism and how uh, the uh, Eastern people cannot really describe themselves. How yeah. would you describe yourself, Johnson? Um, so I used to like the word called global citizen, right? So you travel everywhere and uh, you are open-minded. You accept any differences. Um, and But you do have a national base that I'm proud I'm a Chinese at the same time. Um, but now I think this word has uh, a little bourgeoisie uh, <laughs> flavor to that. So uh, probably is not really down to earth. But I, I think the, the, the idea behind global citizen is still true, that um, uh, people today um, don't uh, view each other from different nationalities, ethnicities, or skin color as a different person. We do see colors, but at the same time, um, these differences means nothing in a sense that we can we can cross cultural and we talk to each other without having any preset per, uh, per, uh, you know uh, assumptions or anything right um, but i that i think that really comes after practices uh, by education by talking to people doesn't really mean anything you have to really have to travel you have to talk to a people from a different culture in order to understand and something cannot transmit it by by words so i think that's a big problem for chinese uh, because the majority of chinese still stay very inward looking and uh, for them, uh, China is big enough, and then there are many interactions with uh, another Chinese. So the lack of this experience is really hard to educate them. One example I introduce you is that uh, a few months ago, there was an episode on, uh, there was an internet fight over um, this brand, fashion brand. I forgot the name of that fashion brand. Mm -hmm. But it was, there was something content that was anti-China, right? So there was two. Dolce Gabbana. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know better than I do. Um, so there are two in interpretations of, of that incident. That my Chinese friend think of this incident as anti-China. Well, my friends, uh, Chinese friends who went to America for education, think this is racism. Mm. So the first people uh, think this is anti-China. Of course, you know you don't think China is strong enough, and then you bring that, bring all that nationalism talks. Um, but my friends who went to educa uh, education in the U.S. thought, okay, this is racism. This is against Chinese as a race. Is mm. you know just simply don't like Asian people. Mm -hmm. uh, or you have uh, misperceptions about them. See, even among the Chinese, we have different understandings because everybody's life experiences are different, right? So, but you have to, how to say, uh, talk to each other, keep the communication right. going. That's from there you can you can break those barriers, right? And learn and learn because it seems to me that racism is just uh, a product of lack of knowledge, um, lack of knowledge, and uh, it's just attitude wise, not open to uh, exactly. new things. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Well, as uh, as a true global citizen, as as you refer to yourself, um, you yourself also have covered many different countries in your in your traveling. Uh, but before you went to the Middle East, or was mm -hmm. it sometime uh, during that? You also had an exchange uh, in Russia. Right. You, you went uh, you went to study for an exchange in the uh, Moscow State University of. Uh, international um, relations, uh, relations yeah. Gimo, yeah. Um, Gimo mm -hmm. uh, indeed. Uh, where, where does your interest in Russia come from? Because your yeah. interest seems to span across the whole region in Central Asia and the Middle East. Where does this specific interest in Russia come from? Yeah, so I, uh, I went to school in the U.S. Uh, it was called the College of William & Mary, and I was an international relations major at the time. So from an international relations perspective, this China-U.S.-Russia triangle relationship is always very interesting. So academic-wise, I always want to venture into Russia and uh, just to learn the culture and uh, politics and everything. 
Also, I'm a crazy fan of Russian literature. Uh, Dostoevsky, Dostoy, I read every single one of those pieces. In also. Russian? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, not yet. Uh, yes. Mostly in Chinese or English. And uh, also, uh, there was a poet. Um, Pushkin. Push, uh, no, not him. Lermontov. Lemontov. And he wrote a lot of things about the Caucasian uh, region, right? That's right. So, you know, from all these readings, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm, I love the culture. So I, I decided to take one semester to go into Russia. So that's why I was in Migimo for a semester. And I was also interning at a think tank in Russia at the same time. And uh, if, you, if you recall, that semester, uh, the fall of 2015, many things happened. Uh, in Russia, and I, uh, one example is that actually is a, is a bad example. I experienced the uh, economic problems of the country at the time because the oil price is not really high at the point, and I see the rubles to be, uh, uh, how does it, devaluating yeah. very, very fast. So I arrived in Russia in September, and at that moment, uh, a, a piece of Coke sold for 35 rubles, and when I left the country, a piece of Coke sold for 50 rubles. So there was a very high speed of, uh, you know, uh, devaluation of rubles. I saw that problem. But at the same time, the Russian people are so hospitable. They don't smile to you uh, when you meet them on the street. But once you become friends with the Russian people, oh, my God, they treat you like real guests and they talk with you. I think the, be the best entertainment of Russian people is talking, is conversation. <laughs> they just like talking, uh, perhaps because, because the weather is so cold. So you only see Russian people at home or in museums or galleries. At home, in the, at a kitchen. At a kitchen. Yeah. And if right. I'm right, there are several verbs for talking, right? In, just for talking in, yes. in Russians. And uh, people just like to talk to each other and then get to know the soul of you. Because that only through talking, you get to know more about the, the civilization. And I find that to be very different from uh, American cultures. Right? In America, everybody greet each other with smiles. Uh, they say polite words. How are you doing? Are you Okay. But um, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, and, but at the same time, it's really hard to make friends in, this, in the sense that you don't really talk that deep with each other. Right. So in Russia, you greet people not with smiles, but you make real friends. I see that uh, differences as a Chinese uh, from a third country. Um, and so that's, that's my best takeaway from Russian uh, experiences. And, and do you think it goes the same way for the Chinese? So, see, here comes the part of misperception that people think Chinese as very, how to say, uh, not very outward-looking uh, people that are very uh, shy. Um, first of all, these are wrong. They also have all kinds of people with different characteristics. Right. But I think, I think northern Chinese are more like the Russians. Like we, you know, we don't really, we are sometimes... Because not, it's cold as it's well. Cold, <laughs> it's cold as well. And I, I think we do, some, we do share the same geography and uh, weather. That's why our characteristic is similar. Um, but in the southern part of China, is more like uh, relations are very clear, especially when you relate to money, right? So you get everything straight, even your relatives. But in northern China, everybody's like, you, you don't worry about money. We are friends. We are buddies. We cover each other. But then sometimes you have problems coming out of that uh, relationship. Right. So I, I do see that characteristics. Um, but I really enjoy the Russian culture. And I think uh, sometimes I do have the opportunity I should go back. It, it, it seems to me that Johnson has been to most of the SEO countries. <laughs> and w w yeah. Yes, and one of the uh, countries that he's traveling to a lot and actually is working is uh, within the uh, Indian VC fund. Is that right? Can you tell yeah, us a little bit yeah. about that? So let's change to the southern part of the continent. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm working currently for uh, Indian Venture Capital, uh, Venture Guruku, which is based in New Delhi. And uh, we are a uh, venture capital that invests in early stage internet business. And we're only aiming at Chinese investment or helping Chinese company to go expand into India. Um, we are a VC fund, but also at the same time, we are an incubator ourselves. We invested in 15 companies so far. Uh, 
And also we uh, help Chinese background companies expand in India, we, we incubate them, we host them too. Um, the reason why I want to do this is also, huh, I actually learned this logic from this China-US-Russia triangle relationship. And I believe by 2030, China, US, and India are going to be the three largest economies in the world. I'm from China, I went to school in the US, I already know something about these two countries, so why not venture into India and learn about number three, right? So that's the simple logic that drives me to go And there. you're only 23 years old. I'm 23 years old, yes. And, uh, but I found it to be very interesting, especially last year, because the Indian ecosystem is booming at this point. Everybody should be learning something about it. Right. And uh, for example, I, I give you several statistics, not to bore you, but I think it's very important. Uh, the FDI in India is uh, 38 billion US dollars last year for the first time that uh, surpassed China, which is 32 US, uh, billion US dollars. Uh, Warren Buffett made his first overseas investment into Paytm, the Indian version of Alipay. Uh, and uh, also, like even Mr. Steve Schwarzman said, it's the right time to invest in India. So especially in the sector of internet business, everything is picking up. And uh, the Chinese companies certainly see this opportunity and said, I think that uh, it's the right time to copy-paste the Chinese model to India uh, because of the large population base and because uh, we simply have advantage in these sectors. So you see a lot of uh, interesting companies venture into India. For example, Alipay itself, Alibaba itself, right. uh, and Financial was the main investor of uh, Paytm. Um, one interesting story is that, uh, you know, in China, everybody used QR code, right? But uh, the Indian people initially are not really familiar with QR code because they don't really trust the safety of QR code. The Russians as well. The Russians as well. So Mr. Benny Chen, Mr. Chen Yan, who is working in, uh, in, in financial, personally invited all the VPs of Paytm to take a tour in Hangzhou city for a day. And once all the VPs saw even 60-year-old couples are selling breakfast simply Phenomenal. by accepting money from <laughs> QR code, yes. they believe in that. Yeah. So now Paytm is using QR code. Even even the homeless in China can uh, yeah. get can out QR the QR code, code. and exactly. get money. And uh, you know this is just amazing. So everybody believe in this like safety thing now with QR code and got spread so fast into India. And besides that, you know everything that China's been good at uh, e-commerce, fintech, edtech, uh, you know Alipay kind of uh, transaction platforms are booming now in India. Um, so I think everyone should uh, take a look in, at the sectors especially with Chinese background, because it's the first time the Chinese company are venturing out into a large economies and doing things that are similar in China. As Alim uh, has just mentioned before, it seems like you're covering more and more SEO countries, BRI countries. Mm. Um, I really wanted to ask you, just out of curiosity, with all of the experience that you've had or um, work-related and uh, uh, student-related experience, if you, at this stage, had the opportunity, for instance, to have your own BRI project, how are small or big uh, across the whole of the BRI space, what would it be? Yeah, so uh, that's a very interesting question. So it's actually related to my organization, Sabri. Uh, one of the vision we have is that we would like to set up chapters all across the world. So our model is, uh, I don't know if you know this organization called GCC, Global China Connection. So I'm trying to follow their mm. steps. Uh, they have their headquarters in Harvard, if I'm, if I'm right. And then they have chapters all around the world in universities. So I'm thinking that Sabri in the future should have his headquarters in Tsinghua universities and chapters all around the world, in different universities in different countries, BRI countries, SEO countries, you know, anywhere. So actually this winter we're taking six winter trips to uh, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Israel, UAE, Indonesia, and Turkey. And they're part of the reasons because we're setting up chapters in uh, one universities at these countries. Uh, I'm actually traveling to Pakistan next week, and from there we're going to set up a chapters at... Uh, 
uh, LOMS, that's a very distinguished university in Pakistan. So this year is the second Belt and Road Summit, right, uh, which is going to be held in Beijing in late uh, April. Right. We're going to have uh, a headquarter in several chapters where youth, young people along Belt and Road can talk to each other. And by 2021, which is going to be the third uh, Belt and Road Summit, we're expecting to have uh, more than 30 chapters all around the world. Mm-hmm. So at that that very moment, can you imagine, it's just going to be a large network of young people with similar interests focused on this Belt and Road regions and capable of talking to each each other for whatever topics, academics, business, cultural, anything. And that's that's exactly what the region needs, doesn't it? That's exactly what the region... It's really underdeveloped the networking opportunities for young people. So they can share new ideas about entrepreneurship once they want to invent something. They can share, they can travel to each other's country and uh, get each other's country's uh, friends host. They can, uh, you know, have internet, uh, you know, they can meet each other on the internet. And once they want to form a company, they can even do that online. So I think you need to develop some sort of platform to help them do this. And I think by having a chapters, that's that's the best way to do that. Yeah. You're 23 years old. Sky's yes. the limit for you. <laughs> now, if you close your eyes and if you imagine a world 10 years from now, right? what type of a world does Johnson Liu envision? Um, first of all... Uh, as uh, Professor Yan Xuetong said, now he's the director of uh, international relations department at Tsinghua University. I can only predict five years, <laughs> logically. But uh, in 10 years, I hope uh, the world will look like, first of all, there's no wars. Uh, uh, people interact with each other in this uh, environment of peace. Uh, countries continue to trade with each other because that's the best way to enhance interstate relations. But uh, what I would like to say more on a personal level is that um, people just forget about these borders. People forget about borders of race and ethnicity. They forget about borders of skin colors. They forget about borders of languages. Mm-hmm. What they are know is uh, I was born. I should have the opportunity to get education. Then I can do whatever I want uh, within the framework of law. Uh, that's the world I'm envisioning. And actually, that's a vision that got, uh, in Chinese context, it was called Da Tong Shehui. It was introduced by a Confucianism idea. So if ancient people already had that dream, our followers, the descendants of uh, our ancestors, should c- continue working for these dreams. Mm-hmm. And I think Belt and Road is a perfect platform to carry on that dream, that in 10 years we truly see this happening. Probably not in 10 years, but in two decades, three decades, four decades, anytime, we're heading for that aim. Well, we couldn't agree with you more. And we're with you. We'll be right there with you. Thank you. And the uh, scholar will definitely, hopefully, uh, will be uh, there as a potential partner Absolutely. of your organization because we really do believe in integration of all of our efforts Absolutely. to come to the vision that you've just described. We should work more. We should work t- together more and uh, for more interesting project or organization activities. And I truly hope that uh, these chapter things is started by Sabri, but it doesn't need to be a Sabri thing. That in the future, uh, by having chapters in all these countries, we can cooperate together and have more opportunities. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for coming. Thank, Thank you for having me.